I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Why, hello there. No, don't readjust your sets. You are listening to American Biography. I'm Jamie Redfern, host of the A History of the United States podcast, and I'm a big fan of biography. Far too often people get simplified into heroes and villains, but that simply isn't real life. Real life is all about nuance. Biography allows you to get into the particulars of what made people tick, the whys of history, not just the when, where's and what's. Tom Daly is doing a sterling job of going through the life of one of the American greats, John Marshall, which is why I am honoured to introduce this episode. So... Without further ado, on with the show. This is The Life of John Marshall, Episode 13, Loss and Litigation. When we left off last time, Marshall had helped the Federalists carry the day in the Virginia Ratifying Convention, and with the new national government approved, he chose to return to the private sector. Over the course of the next several years, as the new national government was rolled out with the newly minted President Washington captaining the ship of state, Marshall settled into the role of preeminent provincial citizen. These years were a time of great personal growth and loss. They were years of economic expansion for Marshall, wherein he gambled on himself and his talents often, and usually came out on top, though his advocacy sometimes found him on the opposite side of his own principles. It's my goal to cover the years which roughly correspond to the Washington presidency, so approximately the years 1789 to 1797, in the next two episodes. This episode will focus on his family and professional life, while the next episode will cover the same span of years, but focus on Marshall as a social and political animal, and look at how he navigated the increasingly fractured politics of the day as national issues came to Richmond and events conspired to draw him into the fray. But today I want to start at home. The last time we checked in with John's family was back in episode 10. The couple had welcomed a healthy son, Thomas, in 1784. But in 1786, they were shattered by the death of a daughter, 
Rebecca, at just five days old, an event which was shortly after followed by a miscarriage. Polly Marshall doesn't emerge from the pages of history as a particularly strong or emotionally resourceful individual, and these sort of losses can devastate even the most stoic of souls. Her ill health persists more or less unabated after this point. However, despite being unwell, Polly seems to almost continually be pregnant over the course of the next decade. I wish I could say that things began to get better for Polly and John, but unfortunately, even though their family was growing, this did not occur without more pain and grief. In 1787, John and Polly welcomed another son, Jocelyn Ambler Marshall. In 1789, a daughter, Mary Ann, was born, but died in August of 1792, before her third birthday. This tragedy was compounded by the loss of four-month-old John James Marshall in June of the same year. A daughter named Mary was born in 1795, and she would be only the third of Polly's first seven pregnancies to result in a child that survived into adulthood. If we step outside the strict parameters of the years I outlined at the beginning of the episode, just for the sake of rounding off this topic, things did improve a bit, at least statistically, when it came to John and Polly's last four children. A third son, named John, arrived in 1798 and would survive into adulthood, though he predeceased his father in 1833 at just 35 years of age. Next came James Keith in 1800, followed by the brief life of Charles, who was born in 1803 and survived just two months before finally, in 1805, came the birth of Edward Carrington Marshall, who would be John and Polly's last child. Exact records on new births were not kept by civil authorities at this time, so any statistics arrived at concerning infant mortality rates are somewhat problematic and largely derived from church records, letters, and the diaries of parents. So instances of miscarriages, stillbirths, and infant deaths are, if anything, likely underreported. Yet by using these sources, some historians have suggested infant and child mortality rates could have run as high as 40% in the Tidewater area of Virginia in the 18th century which is just a staggeringly high number. It also means that with 60% of the Marshalls' live births surviving into adulthood, John and Polly could actually consider themselves fortunate, though this really just serves to underscore how disheartening this reality really was. As a father myself, I really shudder to think of the terrible weight of grief that must have been brought on by the loss of each of these children. I imagine it must have hung like a millstone from their necks. But where Polly would submit and be dragged down by this weight, her husband would not only overcome, but come to thrive. Beyond their personal resilience and coping abilities, the difference in outcomes for the two parents surely were influenced by gender-based cultural expectations. 18th century Virginia was highly patriarchal and simply provided men with more outlets through which their sadness could diffuse than it did for women. Men were allowed the distraction of politics and career. John could go join professional associations and private clubs and enjoy a visit to the tavern and there debate the topics of the day or just sing songs by the fire. 
the opportunities for Polly were limited, really, to just caring for her surviving children, who she undoubtedly loved, and supervising the domestic slaves. However, both of these things are terribly difficult when suffering from depression or anxiety, as it seems Polly did, and probably found it difficult just to get out of bed. As I alluded to, John had the luxury of throwing himself into his career, and by 1789, John's practice was going full tilt. He was a prodigious litigator, and in that year alone, he worked with over 300 clients and took in nearly 1,500 pounds. Most of his fees came from the routine sort of legal work that people casually consult lawyers about even today. Wills, contracts, titles, etc., but he could hope to earn more when cases went before the state's highest court, the Virginia Court of Appeals, where he'd appear 125 times between 1786 and 1796. There are several noteworthy causes and cases Marshall undertook during these years. Some were indicative of future rulings that he'd make from the bench, while others demonstrated the mental agility and moral flexibility Marshall would have to call upon from time to time. In 1787, his alma mater procured Marshall's services in the case of Bracken v. College of William and Mary. Back in Episode 7, we discussed the reorganization of William and Mary in 1779, when the school abolished the Oriental Studies and Classics Chair, just prior to Marshall's brief attendance there. Well, James Bracken was the former professor of classics at William and Mary, and he wanted his job back. He argued that the board had overstepped its authority in making these sweeping changes, and that he was therefore wrongly terminated. Bracken petitioned the appeals court to issue a writ of mandamus, ordering his reinstatement. Because this will come up again in the future, file this one away. A writ of mandamus is essentially a judicial order instructing a person to comply with a public or statutory duty. In Latin, it literally means, we command. This will be on the quiz later. The Bracken case wouldn't come up on the docket until 1790. Marshall's arguments were twofold. One was technical. He said, as the college was a private entity, the court didn't have jurisdiction. And also, again, it's a private entity, so a writ of mandamus wasn't the correct solution in any case. His second argument undermined Bracken's assertion that the board had overstepped their bounds. And this gets at Marshall's general approach when interpreting charters, and eventually, constitutions. Marshall looked at Clause 9 of the college's charter, which stated that the board had power to make such laws for the governance of the college from time to time, according to their various occasion and circumstance, as to them should seem most fit and expedient. To John, this language clearly implied the board was given both discretion to make decisions about the future of the school, and also had the authority to implement them. He gave an example, saying, Because a particular branch of science, which at one period of time would be deemed all-important, might at another be thought not worth acquiring. And when put this way, yeah, that makes sense. Just think about once upon a time quote-unquote sciences like alchemy or astrology which have now been replaced with actual sciences like chemistry and astronomy. A school that still taught those more antiquated disciplines would be neither well-respected or well-attended. In the end, the judges sided with Marshall's argument and refused to issue the writ. 
Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and t shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com slash people today. Now, following the implementation of the National Constitution in 1789, it should surprise no one that debt once again rears its head because it's just more of a basic underlying issue in the early United States than most popular histories recognize. And we should also be unsurprised that it continued to be an important issue to the people living with and dealing with it. To put it succinctly, separate from the international loans that the Continental Congress had borrowed, colonists had borrowed a great deal of money from British creditors. Dating back to before the Revolutionary War, the total neared a staggering five million pounds. Almost half of that total was owed just by Virginians. Debt was a significant enough issue that Article 4 of the 1783 Treaty of Paris, you know, the one that recognized American independence, also stated that creditors attempting to collect debts meet with no lawful impediment to the recovery of the full value in sterling money of all bona fide debts heretofore contracted. However, the Articles of Confederation were worse than useless in this, as with just about everything else, in that it lacked a mechanism for the enforcement of treaties. But hey, this is why the people approved the new constitution, right? And if the American people weren't excited about it, British creditors sure were, and they looked to Article 6 of the new constitution for help. This read, all treaties made under the authority of the United States shall be the supreme law of the land, and the judges of every state shall be bound thereby. Anything in the Constitution or laws of any state to the contrary notwithstanding. So now, not only were the terms of the 1783 treaty enforceable, but another article of the Constitution, Article 3, gave the federal courts the jurisdiction over suits brought by foreigners against U.S. citizens. They, and not the friendlier state courts, would be the venue for these cases when British creditors came calling. And, as if there were any doubt, came calling they did. When the federal courts opened in 1790, they were flooded by British creditors. The federal courts in Virginia had over 200 actions filed for the recovery of British debt in the first year alone. 
In Virginia, these cases were complicated by anti-British debt legislation that had been passed in Virginia during the war that were specifically designed to make it difficult nearer to impossible for a Briton to collect the debts owed them. In 1777, a sequestration law was passed, part of which allowed those who owed money to British creditors to satisfy or reduce their debt by paying all or part of the amount owed directly to the state treasury. And what's that, you ask? Can you make that payment in depreciated state paper money? Gee, hmm, I don't know. Oh, what the hell, sure, go nuts, Virginia. By 1782, the Virginia legislature just didn't care anymore, and it passed a law declaring that no debt or demand whatsoever originally due to a subject to Great Britain shall be recoverable in any court in this commonwealth. Most Virginians presumed this would be the final word on the subject, but by 1790, these same people were horrified to discover that the matter had been reopened. And can you guess where most of these affected Virginians turned for legal aid? That's right, the guy who'd advocated for virtually everything that had made this eventuality possible, from calling for the enforcement of the Treaty of Paris, to replacing the Articles of Confederation, to defending the structure and jurisdiction of the federal courts. John Marshall. Now, I don't think this was the culmination of some slowly unfolding Frank Underwood plot, but if it was... Talk about playing the long game. He soon had so many clients, rather than writing the pleadings out by hand as was the norm at the time, he began to have them printed en masse, leaving blank spaces to write in the party's name and the particular facts of the case. And in the face of pretty straightforward treaty articles and constitutional directives, Marshall's plan was to get everything nice and bogged down, in the not unrealistic hope that the intense strain the private debt question was putting on the diplomatic relationship between the United States and Great Britain would push the two nations towards some settlement on the governmental level that put the issue to bed before his clients were compelled to pay anything. To accomplish this, he constructed four defenses. First, he asserted that if someone had paid their debt directly to the state treasury under the 1777 sequestration law, then that debt was legally discharged. Next, he argued, the 1782 Virginia law barring debt recovery for British creditors had never been repealed, so it was still in force. So really, we should just forget about this. His third argument said that the British hadn't lived up to all of its promises in the Treaty of Paris, so the treaty was void, which, wow, just wow, you're going to argue that the treaty that established American independence is void? And his last argument went along the lines of all British rights to money owed by colonists was annulled on the 4th of July, 1776, because America. Silly as some of these points might seem, they also laid down a sort of legal minefield. These federal judges who would hear these cases were in brand new positions and working off of a brand new constitution. They couldn't be sure of the legitimate reach of their own authority, and without a body of precedents to point to for justification, they were understandably reticent about tackling the large constitutional issues Marshall had muddied the water with. Today, these might not seem like much, but that's largely because of cases like these, and lawyers and judges like John Marshall, who've already settled these issues. 
But make no mistake about it, these were big questions at the time, as Gene Smith illustrates here. Were the laws of Virginia compelled to yield to the Treaty of Paris as the supreme law of the land? If the treaty automatically superseded conflicting state laws, did it also nullify prior state actions taken under those laws, such as Virginia's sequestration scheme? Was the treaty of 1783 void because of British noncompliance? And equally vexing, did the judiciary have the authority to declare a treaty void? All of these questions had to be dealt with, and the judges procrastinated as long as they could. In 1793, Ware v. Hilton would be the test case for Marshall's legal theories, and was heard in a Virginia Federal Circuit Court. As was then the practice, the Supreme Court justices rode the circuit when the main court was not in session at the Capitol. So in addition to a district judge, John Marshall and his co-counsel Patrick Henry argued before an associate justice, James Iredell, and the first chief justice, John Jay. The facts were simple enough. In 1774, a Virginia merchant, Hilton, had taken out a bond for 1,500 pounds sterling to settle some accounts. Then the revolution happened. Later, under the laws of Virginia, Hilton paid 953 pounds in depreciated Virginia paper to the state, which in reality was only worth about 15 pounds specie. Ware was the successor of the original petitioner who was suing for the full recovery of the sum borrowed plus interest. As was the case whenever they worked together, Marshall would argue the finer, technical points of law and cite authorities pulling precedents from wherever he could, while Henry strutted around the court providing drama and infusing the case with righteous energy. They were a potent one-two punch, as Justice Iredell gushed in his circuit court opinion. The case has been spoken to at the bar with a degree of ability equal to any occasion. I shall long as I live remember with pleasure and respect the arguments which I have heard on this case. They have discovered an ingenuity, a depth of investigation, and a power of reasoning fully equal to anything I have ever witnessed, and some of them have been adorned with a splendor of eloquence surpassing what I have ever felt before. Fatigue has given way under its influence, and the heart has been warmed, while the understanding has been instructed. The judges agreed that the Declaration of Independence wasn't a viable defense for pretty much anything. They also voided the 1782 Act barring the collection of debts by the British, as it was in violation of Article 6 of the Constitution and the Treaty of Paris. They also ruled that the court didn't have any authority to void the treaty. But then the ruling went on to find, over Jay's dissent, that the 1777 Act stood. So if an individual had made a payment to the state, they had discharged their personal debt, and the burden had essentially been passed on to Virginia. So while the creditor could still seek to recover the debt, they'd have to go try to shake down Virginia and not the original debtor. This victory was fleeting, however, and Ware appealed to the Supreme Court. The case would be heard in Philadelphia in 1796, and this was to be Marshall's only appearance before the court as an attorney. Jay and Iredell, who'd heard the case at the circuit level, recused themselves, and the remaining four justices unanimously overturned the lower court's ruling. That was probably a bad day for Marshall. However, despite the fact that his legal defenses had been dismissed, most Virginia debtors would never end up having to pay a shilling. 
Ultimately, John's strategy of delay had worked, and partially thanks to the time that had elapsed, Smith tells us, those creditors who obtained judgments were often unable to collect because the debtors had died, moved away, become insolvent, or so distributed their property as to prevent execution of the judgment. Additionally, the 1794 Jay Treaty had established an arbitration commission to hear the claims of British creditors. This opened in 1797, and creditors favored this route over the courts, as the courts were seeming like a little bit of a dead end. Eventually, in 1802, negotiations between the two nations led to the United States paying Great Britain a £600,000 indemnity, which the British government would distribute to claimants on its own. So in the end, it turned out that Marshall's instincts had not really been too far off the mark about how the whole thing might play out. But now I'm going to turn to a final piece of litigation that was very personal for Marshall, and which would consume a good chunk of his time for nearly 20 years, and which, at times, seemed poised to ruin him. I'm going to try and be brief, but the story is complex and layered, and to start I have to hop back to 1786, when Marshall successfully got the Virginia Court of Appeals to implicitly recognize the Fairfax title in the case of Height v. Fairfax. It was then that John first became interested in possibly purchasing what were known as the Fairfax Manor Lands. This was the portion of the proprietorship that Lord Fairfax had set aside for his own personal use. As we mentioned before, Lord Fairfax died in 1781. Now his heir, Danny Martin Fairfax, lived in England and had no intention of moving to the United States, and was generally willing to sell. In 1792, John's brother, James Marshall, went to London to work out a deal for the purchase of these manor lands, and in early 1793, they agreed to purchase 215,000 acres for £20,000 sterling, which works out to a little less than two shillings per acre. The transfer date would be February 1st, 1794, provided that the seller could convey a clear title. It would be John Marshall's job to ensure that title was clear, and he was supremely confident in his ability to do so. He rooted his belief again in the Treaty of Paris, which, don't forget, via Article 6 of the Constitution was the supreme law of the land, and it just so happened that part of the treaty prohibited the future confiscation of British subjects' property after the treaty's ratification in 1783. So for those of you keeping score at home, when it comes to land... Marshall has a personal interest in the Treaty of Paris and Article 6, good. When it comes to Virginians paying off debts to British creditors, the Treaty of Paris and Article 6, bad. <sighs> Lawyers. But the state of Virginia saw the proprietary lands as a cash bonanza and had begun to confiscate and sell off unappropriated Fairfax lands. Given his interest and his experience in the matter, Going back to the Height case, Denny Fairfax retained Marshall to defend against these confiscations. The opening bell sounded in 1794's Hunter v. Fairfax. Virginia had confiscated land from the Fairfax estate and sold it to a private party named David Hunter. Virginia justified this theft of Fairfax land under the common law doctrine of his cheat saying that a non-resident alien could not inherit real property, and as Denny was a British subject living in Britain, Lord Fairfax had essentially died intestate, and ownership of the property, therefore, rightly reverted to the state. 
Fairfax filed an objection, and Hunter sued to obtain a clear title. The judge in the case said Virginia couldn't just invoke the doctrine of escheat and nakedly steal the land, but had to at least first initiate court proceedings and allow Denny Fairfax or his representative to respond. So Virginia retaliated by filing escheat claims in various counties all throughout the Northern Neck. And the county courts that heard these cases almost universally sided with Virginia. Marshall, of course, appealed each one of these and the stage was set for bringing the question of the validity of the Fairfax title before Virginia's highest court. Now is when things start to get a little crazy, and I'm really not kidding when I say that. Firstly, there was that awkward moment when everybody realized that John Marshall was representing both the plaintiff and the defendant. That's right, the attorney general, who would usually represent the state in this case, was James Ines, but he was out of Richmond on state business, and Marshall was acting as his substitute. Now, naturally, another counselor just took over on behalf of Virginia, while John continued to represent Fairfax and his own interests. But still, that's an awkward start. The delay in finding his replacement, though, weighed on John, because an essential part of his plan was to appeal a loss in Virginia to the federal courts. Well, as he was waiting... The 11th Amendment to the Constitution, which had already been approved, was now out for ratification among the states. And for those of you not familiar, I'll tell you that the 11th Amendment states, The judicial power of the United States shall not be construed to extend to any lawsuit in law or equity commenced or prosecuted against one of the United States by citizens of another state or by citizens or subjects of any foreign state. Yeah, so that was going to be a problem since Denny Fairfax was a foreign subject, and once the 11th Amendment was ratified, he wasn't going to have standing to appeal his case against Virginia. It was at this point that Marshall threw a bit of a Hail Mary pass and wrote to Denny Fairfax in Britain, instructing him to get in touch with the British delegation currently negotiating the Jay Treaty with the Americans in London, to see if they couldn't include the recognition of the Fairfax title directly into the treaty. Now this probably wasn't a realistic suggestion, and in any case, the letter arrived too late. The Jay Treaty had been signed two weeks earlier, on November 19, 1794. But the treaty did include something rather interesting. Article 9 reads, It is agreed that British subjects who now hold lands in the territories of the United States, shall continue to hold them according to the nature and tenure of their respective estates and titles therein, and may grant, sell, or devise the same to whom they please, in like manner as if they were natives, and that neither they nor their heirs or assigns shall, so far as may respect the said lands, be, and the legal remedies incident thereto, be regarded as aliens." This essentially exempted British subjects from escheat actions, and when Marshall saw this, he was positive that he had to get the case into federal court because he knew those courts would uphold the treaty, whereas he wasn't so sure about the Virginia Court of Appeals. The 11th Amendment was ratified in February of 1795, so Marshall had to look around for litigation that Virginia was not a party to, but also directly involved the Fairfax title. So he sued David Hunter, you know, on the behalf of Denny Fairfax, of course. By filing a private lawsuit, John did an end-around of the Virginia Court of Appeals 
and the 11th Amendment. And in June of 1795, the Federal District Court ruled in favor of Fairfax. But this was, of course, immediately appealed, and would, ultimately, in its final configuration, end up in front of John Marshall's Supreme Court in 1816 as Martin v. Hunter's lessee. But that doesn't even matter, because Hunter was just a pawn being played by Marshall and the state of Virginia, who paid for his legal defense. By now, though, both sides were becoming increasingly worried about the outcome of all this legal wrangling, because the stakes just kept seeming to get higher and higher. In the end, the two sides realized that they had different interests that they were trying to protect in all of this, and that they could accommodate each other. Virginia really only cared about the approximately 2 million acres of unappropriated land nominally controlled by the original royal grant that established the proprietorship, and not the manor lands. And Marshall really only cared about the 215,000 acres that comprised the manor lands. So it was time to play Let's Make a Deal. It was decided that Denny Fairfax would sign over the whole propriety to James Marshall, who would then convey the unappropriated acreage to the state of Virginia. Then, the state would recognize the Fairfax title to the manor lands, thereby clearing the way for Denny to sell an unencumbered property to the marshals, and some other partners brought in to help finance the sale. This deal would ultimately net John 50,000 acres of land, but this wouldn't be finalized until October of 1806, because financing actually fell through at one point. But that's a whole nother can of worms that I'm not even going to think about right now. And this is where I'm going to stop for today. And if your head is spinning a little bit, let me assure you, mine is too. But I felt the effort of trying to convey both the scope and complexity of the type of litigation Marshall was involved in helps us gain insight into his legal mind, which is worth it. I believe this episode will also offer a good contrast to the next one where we'll see Marshall criticized by his opponents as intellectually lazy and frivolous as the national political rift takes hold and people begin choosing sides. In the meantime, please check out AmericanBiography.webs.com where you can find our PayPal button through which you can support the show. You can also like American Biography on Facebook or follow me on Twitter at American underscore bio. Please also consider giving the show a review on iTunes. And as always, if you should like to get in touch with me, please write to AmericanBiographyPodcast at gmail.com. And just one last thing before I go. I want to give a huge thank you to Jamie Redfern for his kind introduction at the beginning of this episode. For those of you who may not know, Jamie is one of the great podcasters and has produced shows such as The History of Alexander and is currently producing The History of Hannibal and The Arab Spring, A History. His newest project is A History of the United States, and it's off to a predictably great start, as Jamie is both an entertaining host and an unimpeachable historian. But what I'm most excited about is the opportunity to hear American history discussed from a knowledgeable outside perspective. So make sure you give A History of the United States and the entirety of the Jamie Redfern catalog a listen. You won't be disappointed. Okay, well, that's it. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you soon.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.